Welcome to Hit Parade, a podcast of pop chart history from Slate Magazine about the hits from coast to coast. I'm Chris Melanfic, chart analyst, pop critic, and writer of Slate's Why Is This Song Number One series. On today's show, 55 years ago this summer, in late June 1964, the number one song on Billboard's Hot 100 was a Lennon-McCartney composition, but the song wasn't by the Beatles. It was a song penned by Paul McCartney and recorded by a previously unknown British duo, one of whom was Paul's would-be brother-in-law. Please lock me away and don't allow the day a little over a decade later, in January 1975, the top song in America was by a superstar who had an affinity for large glasses and feather boas. This superstar happened to be very good friends with former Beatle John Lennon, and the Lennon-McCartney song that he took to number one was a song that his new pal John had written eight years earlier. Six more years after that, in June 1981, the Hot 100's number one song also sported Lennon-McCartney songwriting credits. Only neither man had anything to do with this hit. It was a disco medley of cover songs by a collection of Dutch studio musicians who were trying to sound like the Beatles. Believe it or not, these three singles are the only non-Beatles Lennon-McCartney compositions ever to top the Billboard Hot 100. The fact that all three are curios, even the one by Elton John is a bit quirky, tells us something about the singular place the Fab Four's catalog holds in the public imagination. A lot of musicians cover the Beatles, but it is very hard to top the Beatles. Even in 2019, we are still pondering this conundrum. In movie theaters this summer, the Danny Boyle-Richard Curtis film Yesterday presents a parallel universe in which the Beatles never existed, and yet their songs can still move millions of people. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Why did you write that? I didn't write it. Paul McCartney wrote it. The Beatles. Who? But we don't need a fantastical film premise to consider a world where songs by John Lennon and Paul McCartney, but not performed by the Beatles, topped the charts. On the actual Hot 100, truth is much stranger than fiction. For a cover song to dominate the hit parade, it isn't enough that the original song is well-written. The song and the artist have to catch the zeitgeist at a very specific cultural moment. Whether it's a moment when the original group is busy, it's been a hard day's night, 
a moment when two superstars are sharing a public bromance or a moment when the world is mourning a profound artistic loss. I'm just sitting here watching the wheels go round and round. Today on Hit Parade, we will consider the real moments when America was without the Beatles. One song each from the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s that benefited from Lennon-McCartney's songwriting prowess, but not the performances of the Fab Four. Each hit's success was more about the moment than about the song itself. The alchemy that makes a song a number one hit is always somewhat fluky. But when it comes to Lennon-McCartney songs, it's really fluky. And that's where your hit parade marches today. Three different weeks on the charts. First, the week ending June 27th, 1964, when Peter and Gordon were number one with A World Without Love. I don't care what they say, I won't stay in a world without love. Then, the week ending January 4th, 1975, when Elton John took over the top spot with Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Finally, and strangest of all, the week ending June 20th, 1981, when a bizarre disco medley of mostly Beatles songs by a group calling itself Stars on 45 went to number one and kicked off a medley craze that would infiltrate the hit parade for months to come. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before I probe these three strange records, let's take a moment to marvel that none of these three chart toppers is a cover of the song Yesterday. There's a shadow hanging over me. Oh, yesterday came suddenly. The Guinness Book of World Records at one time claimed that this song held the global record for most cover versions of any song, with somewhere between 1,500 and 2,200 covers. By the way, this Guinness record has since been disputed, as George Gershwin's ballad Summertime from the musical Porgy and Bess has been covered between 25 and 30,000 times. Anyway... Yesterday is surely the most covered Beatles song. It was written and performed entirely by Paul McCartney, backed only by a string section and without the other three Beatles. 
This, by the way, serves as a handy reminder of just what we mean when we use the term Lennon-McCartney. Despite the absence of John Lennon and the other two Beatles, Yesterday, like all songs written by either John or Paul in the 1960s, was published under the songwriting entity Lennon-McCartney. As has been well chronicled, while John and Paul started as a nose-to-nose songwriting duo, by the time of the Beatles' success, the two men mostly wrote alone and would only occasionally add a bridge or a lyric to what was primarily the other songwriter's composition. Despite Guinness's apocryphal Yesterday record and the inarguable number of covers it has spawned, the song's history on the Hot 100 is remarkably scant. Two years after the Beatles' single topped the Hot 100, Ray Charles's 1967 version of Yesterday reached a modest number 25 on the pop chart, the same week it peaked at number 9 on the R&B chart. Amazingly, this cover by Charles remains the only version of Yesterday, besides the Beatles' own, to successfully breach the U.S. Top 40. Only one other cover of the song came close to appearing on the Hot 100. In 1992, R&B girl group En Vogue released their cover of Yesterday. Because it was an album cut, it wasn't allowed on the Hot 100 due to the chart rules at the time, but it did receive some radio airplay. It reached number 73 on Billboard's pop radio chart and number 29 on the R&B radio chart. Of course, recording artists have taken on many other Lennon-McCartney songs. A half-dozen Beatles songs have been turned into top 10 or top 20 hits by other acts. Some were on the charts while the Fab Four were still together, including You've Got to Hide Your Love Away, which was taken to number 10 by the English folk group The Silky in 1965. Hey, you've got to hide or The Fool on the Hill by Sergio Mendes and Brazil 66, which reached number six in 1968. And in 1969, the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, took her fiery reimagining of Eleanor Rigby, to number five on Billboard's R&B chart and number 17 on the Hot 100. After the Beatles were broken up, Motown legend Stevie Wonder took We Can Work It Out to number three on the R&B chart and number 13 on the Hot 100 in 1971. Canadian songstress Anne Murray took You Won't See Me 
to number eight on the pop chart in 1974. R&B supergroup Earth, Wind & Fire took Got To Get You Into My Life to number nine in 1978. And in the 80s, teen pop star Tiffany flipped the gender on the Beatles classic I Saw Her Standing There. Tiffany's version of I Saw Him Standing There reached number seven in 1988. Notice that most of these cover songs were not big Beatles hits in the first place. Perhaps it's silly to claim there's any such thing as a little-known Beatles song. But Lennon-McCartney tracks like You've Got to Hide Your Love Away or You Won't See Me are closer to deep cuts. When The Silky or Anne Murray took these songs on, they knew they weren't competing with an original Beatles smash. Nobody took a cover of a song as big as Yesterday into the pop top 10. The fact is, given the Beatles' enormous popularity and their self-contained songwriting and meticulous production, John Lennon and Paul McCartney posed a challenge for song interpreters. Once the Fab Four had laid down their George Martin-produced, carefully crafted versions, other artists approached these songs at their peril. I need somebody not just anybody you know i need someone literally thousands of artists have covered the beatles but when it comes to the charts the public has shown time and again that it is choosy about beatles covers which might help explain why the only three lennon mccartney covers to reach number one are such oddball curiosities very specific to their place in time Let's take them in chronological order. First, let's travel to the spring of 1964 and meet the luckiest unknown pop duo in all of England, who were about to record a smash. And Peter and Gordon's number one song wasn't technically a Beatles cover. It was a Fab Four reject. Ever think those fables and fairy tales from back in the day are just a little bit dusty? Wondery and Tinkercast are bringing you a new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Join host DJ Fuch and his trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as they deliver remixes of fables and folktales, rhythm and rhymes, and fun spins on classics as old as time. Grab the whole family and get ready to groove because they're putting the rap in Rapunzel and getting down with that funky duckling. Where hip-hop and fables meet, it's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to all episodes of Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. In 1964, the year the British invasion kicked off in America, seven Lennon-McCartney songs topped the Hot 100. Six of these songs were by the Beatles, from I Want to Hold Your Hand... To I Feel Fine. 
but the seventh of these songs went to number one right near the midpoint of the year and it was by a british duo peter asher and gordon waller who just turned 20 and 19 respectively in june of 64 and had never had a hit before how did these two earnest, bookish lads wind up in possession of an unrecorded, unreleased Lennon-McCartney song in 1964? Well, as with all things show business related, it never hurts to have connections. One year earlier, in April of 1963, the Beatles played a BBC Live broadcast at the Royal Albert Hall. There, the Liverpool group met a 17-year-old London actress named Jane Asher. Jane had appeared in movies as early as five years old, and by the early 60s was a regular on BBC TV's music program Jukebox Jury. Within days, Paul McCartney and Jane Asher began dating kicking off a courtship that would last five years. This was fortuitous timing for Jane's bespectacled older brother, Peter Asher. Like his sister, Peter had been a child actor in the 1950s, but around 1963, as Beatlemania gripped England, Peter formed a pop duo, Peter and Gordon, with his Scottish schoolmate, Gordon Waller. If you miss this train, I'm on Just as Peter and Gordon were getting their act off the ground, Paul McCartney not only began dating Peter's sister, but even living in the Ashers' house. Jane's and Peter's parents were so taken with Paul, they invited the Beatle to treat their upstairs bedroom as his home in London. For the next several years, McCartney spent the mid-60s as de facto extended family to the Ashers, and his relationship to Peter, as chronicled in several Beatles biographies, was brotherly, even before Paul and Jane became engaged. While Paul infamously never married Jane, she finally broke it off in 1968, not long before he married Linda Eastman, from the start, McCartney's close relationship with the Ashers was very helpful to Peter. While living in their house, Paul wrote several songs. For example, he reportedly wrote the song Yesterday while staying there. But not all of the new songs Paul wrote or played in the Asher house were destined for the Beatles. A World Without Love was a song McCartney wrote by himself as a teenager. It was deemed unworthy of the Beatles. John Lennon, in particular, didn't care for it. And the song was even rejected by fellow Liverpool musician Billy J. Kramer. But Peter and Gordon? They needed the material. Please lock me away And don't allow the day after signing a contract with EMI around the start of 1964, Peter and Gordon were asked by their new label if they had any original songs. 
Asher asked McCartney if he and Waller could have a world without love. Paul even finished writing the song for him, finally adding its missing bridge. And Peter and Gordon brought it to producer Norman Newell, who openly emulated the then-hot Liverpool or Mersey sound. So I wait, and in a while, I will see my true love smile. She may come, I know not when. When she does, I know, so baby, until then, lock me away. Even for those hearing the song for the first time in 1964, A World Without Love sounded instantly familiar. The chiming guitars and dewy vocal harmonies read as an unabashed Fab Four pastiche. One of the clever touches that Peter Gordon and producer Norman Newell added to the song was a Hammond organ bridge, a sound that the Beatles themselves would use that same year on their own track, Mr. Moonlight. Even though John Lennon had nothing to do with A World Without Love, as per his and Paul's ongoing agreement, the songwriting credits read Lennon-McCartney. Pop critic and chart columnist Tom Ewing, who blogs about UK number one hits for his site Populist, calls A World Without Love, quote, a glimpse at a world where the Beatles didn't make the step up from national to global pop phenomenon. Instead, they pursue a profitable sideline and afterlife as a superior pop songwriting team, unquote. It is as if Paul McCartney, like a mass market artist, has put his signature on an authorized Fab Four replica. As the song ends, you can practically envision Peter Asher and Gordon Waller taking a deep Beatles-like bow. But as uncanny a facsimile as A World Without Love was, the songwriting of Paul McCartney and the sound of the Beatles didn't guarantee Peter and Gordon a number one hit. They also had great timing. That's because World happened to catch Beatlemania during a brief interlude when the band itself had no product. Tell me, uh, how did you find America? So I left to Greenland. Has success changed your life? Yes. I'd like to keep Britain tidy. Are you a mod or a rocker? Um, no, I'm a mocker. <laughs> Shooting a hard day's night kept the Beatles out of the studio for most of the spring of 1964, at the very moment Beatlemania was cresting. After dominating the Hot 100 for all of February, March, and April, their many singles finally began slipping. By mid-June, there were only three Beatles hits left on the entire Hot 100. This is when Peter and Gordon's single entered the top 10 and, to borrow a term from economics, filled a market gap. So baby, until then, lock me away and don't allow the day. A World Without Love reached number one the last week of June 1964. It spent a total of eight weeks in the top ten, satiating a Beatles-hungry public while the Beatles themselves were finishing A Hard Day's Night. Then, dutifully, Peter and Gordon passed the baton back to the Fab Four, 
As World dropped out of the top 10 from number 8 to number 22, debuting right next to it at number 21 was the Beatles' title track from their new film. By early August, as A Hard Day's Night shot to number one, A World Without Love had fallen off the chart entirely. Mind you, this was far from the end of Peter and Gordon's hit-making career. Peter Asher still had access to Paul McCartney's songwriting. Listen to the bird who sings it to the tree And then when you heard him see if you agree Nobody I know could love you more than me Before 1964 was over, Peter and Gordon returned to the top 20 with two more songs written by McCartney, the number 12 hit Nobody I Know and the number 20 hit I Don't Want to See You Again, both of which were similarly Beatlesque. Peter and Gordon eventually scored hits by other songwriters, including top 10 hits in 1965 and 1966, before they finally disbanded in 1968, the same year Paul McCartney and Jane Asher broke up. But Peter's relationship with the Beatles continued. When the group formed its Apple Records label that year, Peter Asher was named Head of Artists and Repertoire, or A&R, and he recruited a young James Taylor to Apple that same year. There's something in the way she moves That looks my way or calls my name That seems to leave this troubled world behind By the 70s, Asher left Apple Records to become Taylor's manager and, eventually, a Grammy-winning producer for a raft of platinum soft rock stars in the 70s and 80s, including Bonnie Raitt, 10,000 Maniacs, and Linda Ronstadt. As long as we're in the 70s, Let's turn to the second of our three non-Beatles Lennon-McCartney number ones. For Peter and Gordon, topping the charts was all about leveraging their connections at the best possible moment, a breakthrough that they parlayed into a decent career. Our 70s chart topper, by contrast, had already been topping the charts on his own. In fact, he'd been utterly dominating the Hot 100 for most of the early 70s. But that doesn't mean Elton John didn't take advantage of, well, forgive me, a little help from his friends. While Peter and Gordon's hit had been a Paul McCartney composition and a leftover, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was a song largely written by John Lennon. And Lucy was far from a leftover. It was a track from Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the 1967 Beatles LP that changed the way albums were perceived culturally and marketed by the music industry. Lucy in the sky, Lucy in the sky, Lucy in the sky. 
Famously, the Sgt. Pepper album had no singles issued from it in 1967, and hence no chart hits. Infamously, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was the song from Pepper that Beatle fans swore, and the Beatles themselves spent years denying, was about an acid trip, given its LSD initials. In any case, Elton John's cover of Lucy would be the first hit version, although it was not the first cover, given the unintentionally hilarious 1968 version by Star Trek's William Shatner. Somebody calls you, you answer quite slowly. A girl with kaleidoscope eyes. Cellophane flowers. But what Elton's Lucy had in common with Peter and Gordon's fluke chart topper was that it didn't matter what they knew so much as whom they knew. Elton John met John Lennon at a great time for Elton's career and a strange moment for Lennon. It was a period that Lennon later called his lost weekend, a debauched 18 months from late 1973 to early 1975 in which he was estranged from wife Yoko Ono and drinking and drugging his way through Los Angeles. Lately you've been, according to the press, uh, kind of freaking out. Was that a reaction to anything in your personal life? It was, it was personal and the immigration, which is all personal, you know. Mm-hmm. It, just, it just got down to... You know, get uh, hanging around with the boys and getting drunk, but because I'm famous, you get it gets in the paper, you know. No. And it was just like working it out that way, but it doesn't really work that way because you wake up after your hangover and you've got to face it anyway. So, mind you, Elton John was no slouch in the debauchery department, but when he and Lennon met up in the summer of 1974, Elton's career was at the aforementioned apex of hitmaking. Lennon, by contrast, had to that date built, oddly, the least commercially successful career of the four solo Beatles. All three of the other Beatles had scored number one singles by 1974, even Ringo. To this point, the solo Lennon had no chart toppers. In case you're wondering, Lennon's classics Instant Karma and Imagine both peaked at number three in America in 1970 and 71, respectively. John Lennon's friendship with Elton John changed his chart fortunes. In the summer and early fall of 1974, Elton and John went into the studio together and recorded singles that would ultimately be issued separately, one hit apiece under each man's name. John Lennon's single came first. Elton played piano and sang harmony vocals on an ebullient track that Lennon had written called Whatever Gets You Through the Night.
Elton was positively convinced that this catchy, clapping, party-starting single would be Lennon's first solo career chart topper. He was so confident, in fact, that he bet Lennon it would go to number one. And Elton made him promise that if it did, Lennon would have to join Elton on stage in concert. That November, Whatever Gets You Through the Night did indeed become Lennon's first number one single on the Hot 100, and the former Beatle made good on the bet by appearing at an Elton John show at Madison Square Garden on Thanksgiving 1974. By the way, this show, one year before Lennon went on a long recording sabbatical, and six years before his assassination, turned out, sadly, to be John Lennon's last live appearance. Even before that show, Lennon had already repaid Elton by helping him record a cover of Lennon's Beatles-era composition, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Lennon even provided backing vocals and guitar on Lucy under the pseudonym Dr. Winston O'Boogie. Again, in its original Beatles incarnation, Lucy had a reputation as a drug anthem. But in Elton's hands, Lucy turns whimsical. It plays off of and boosts Elton's glittery, cuddly, Captain Fantastic persona. You can hear it in the way he overplays the courtliness of Lennon's whimsical lyrics, such as the word marshmallow, excuse me, marshmallow. Then, more than halfway through the song, there's a head-scratching reggae version of the chorus, during which Elton and a very audible John Lennon do some plinky white boy toasting for half a minute. It's a unique concept that further establishes the track as a novelty. The fact that Elton was at the apex of his imperial phase explains why this Lucy cover even exists. It was a total because-I-can move. Elton's bromance with John Lennon was a kind of good housekeeping seal of approval on his cover of Lucy. And it worked. Just seven weeks after John Lennon's Whatever Gets You Through the Night topped the Hot 100, Elton John's Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds followed it to the pinnacle in early January 1975. But for a number one hit, Lucy had a remarkably quick burn on the charts. It was on and off the Hot 100 in just 14 weeks, barely three months. Perhaps it had something to do with how prolific Elton was during this period. Lucy was issued as a non-album single, and it was followed immediately by another one-off number one hit, the smash Philadelphia Freedom. 
Philadelphia Freedom spent 21 weeks on the Hot 100, months longer than Lucy. Today, Nielsen Music reports that Philadelphia Freedom is played about six times as frequently on oldies radio as Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, its twin 1975 chart topper. But of course, Lucy was mostly a reflection of a megastar's own megastardom. In a career that had already produced such campy hits as Crocodile Rock and Benny and the Jets, Elton John's Lennon-McCartney cover may have been, amazingly, his kitschiest hit of all, even though it had an actual Beatle playing on it. Six years later, after the death of that Beatle, Elton gave his friend a more somber, elegiac tribute with his 1981 hit, Empty Garden. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So, the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Now that we've arrived in 1981, there's one last chart topper we have to discuss the true outlier among this collection of Lennon McCartney outliers. And. Where do I begin with everything that's strange about the stars on 45? Let's start with this wacky song's twisted backstory. And it starts not in 1981, but in 1970 when this other song, completely unrelated to Lennon or McCartney, topped the charts. She's got it. Yeah, baby, she's got it. Well, I'm your Venus. I'm your fire and your desire. The shocking blues Venus was a smash worldwide, including here in America, where it reached number one on the Hot 100. By the way, a brief aside, this song is so catchy, it's hit number one here more than once. My fellow Generation Xers may have fond memories of the Bananarama version, which reached the top of the Hot 100 in 1986. 
anyway, back to 1970 and the Shocking Blue. The Shocking Blue were a Dutch group, and the copyright for Venus was owned by a Dutch publishing company called Red Bullet Productions. It was run by a gentleman named Willem van Kooten. Let's flash forward about another decade. Van Kooten was in a record store in the Netherlands sometime around late 1979 when he heard a 12-inch dance single playing. It was not only the end of the 70s, but the final months of disco's roughly five-year dominance over the music business. It was not uncommon at this time for professional DJs to release disco 12-inch singles that blended a slew of current dance hits into one big megamix designed to keep the dance floor thriving. A more popular example of this was the 1976 hit by the Philadelphia trio The Ritchie Family, who reached the top 20 with their single The Best Disco in Town, a track that strung together snippets of a half dozen prior hits in under three minutes. But unlike the best disco in town, disco megamixes weren't normally chart hits. Much more often, they were white label, gray market 12-inch mixes produced by DJs for DJs. And like the mixtapes that rappers would release decades later with uncleared samples, these underground disco 12-inch megamixes featured songs the DJs borrowed without authorization. This is what Van Kooten noticed when he heard this particular 12-inch. It was called Let's Do It in the 80s Great Hits, a title that could only have been conceived by a non-English speaker. It was credited to the artist Passion on a record label called Alto, but it was basically a bootleg. In fact, the 12-inch was the handiwork of Michel Gendreau and Paul Richer, French-Canadian DJs from Montreal who liked splicing together bits of music from different periods and genres. What was remarkable about Let's Do It in the 80s Great Hits was that it lurched from very current disco tracks by the likes of The Gap Band or Lips Incorporated to songs that were at least a decade old, all mixed over a clapping beat. One of those older songs in the mix was the shocking blues Venus. Gendro and Richer mashed it up with the Archie's 1969 hit Sugar Sugar. And Van Kooten, who owned the copyright to Venus, knew that he hadn't cleared it. The unauthorized use of the shocking blue wasn't even the most brazen thing about the Montreal 12-inch. 
In its boldest move, right after the Archies, the track switched gears to a long string of Beatles songs. And again, these were all original recordings, totally uncleared. This happened once before, I came to your door, no reply. The Beatles medley kicked off with No Reply and I'll Be Back. Interestingly, not songs that had been hits in the 60s or were even all that danceable. And then DJs Gendro and Richer just kept going with the Beatles hits. Drive My Car, Do You Want to Know a Secret, We Can Work It Out, I Should Have Known Better, Nowhere Man, and You're Going to Lose That Girl. For his part, Van Kooten was more charmed than angered by the unlicensed Montreal 12-inch record. And he was also inspired, particularly by the long Beatles medley in the middle of the record. He decided that, rather than seeking to stamp out the 12-inch, he would make it legit by recreating it as an authorized medley, using sound-alike artists to replicate the original hits. It was a novel, perhaps crazy idea, but Van Kooten knew that he would not need permission to license the Beatles recordings. Covers of songs require only the payment of publishing fees. So, Van Kooten contacted a colleague whom he thought could produce the sound-alike record, Jaap Egermont, a veteran of the Dutch recording industry. Egermont had played drums with the well-known Dutch band Golden Earring back in the 1960s, when they were still called Golden Earrings. Egermont, in turn, teamed up with musical arranger Martin Duser, and together they recruited a group of established Dutch singers, all of them in current Dutch bands. These singers' impersonations of the Fab Four were not precise, but fairly respectable. Bach Mize of the pop group Smile did a pretty good John Lennon impression. Sandy Coast frontman Hans Vermeulen took on the challenge of Paul McCartney's vocals. And Oki Hoisdens of the band Rainbow Train was passable as George Harrison. Listen, do you want to know a secret? Do you promise not to tell? Egermont's team remade all eight Beatles song segments from the Montreal 12-inch. They were very faithful to the original Megamix. They even threw in small snippets of two non-Beatles oldies from the 12-inch, the shocking blues Venus, which of course was what led Willem van Kooten to remake the bootleg in the first place, as well as the Archie's Sugar Sugar. Sugar Uh, 
one last thing Egremont borrowed for the track was a fleeting reference to the song Beat the Clock by the quirky British hitmaking duo Sparks. The tracks that Egremont's team re-recorded were then spliced together, analog style, against an unremittingly chipper clap track. That insidious, infectious clap track dates the song very specifically to 1980. What is amusing about Stars on 45, however, is its unhip homage to 70s-style disco. The introduction to the track makes this obvious. It's an original melody that gave the song its name, Stars on 45. And its pidgin English lyrics instruct you to boogie like disco, but it also commands dancers not to forget the oldies. By the way, the lyrics to this intro mention two Beatles song titles, Twist and Shout and Tell Me Why, that never actually appear in the Stars on 45 medley. This incongruity is what is most surreal about Stars on 45, the way it mashes up late disco-era production with all those classic 60s songs. Like its Montreal predecessor, it throws both upbeat and downbeat Beatles songs into the disco blender and purees them into dance music. The record is, well, tacky, but also admirably guileless. Yap Egermont and Martin Duzer wound up creating two versions of Stars on 45. The nearly 10-minute edition replicated most of the original Montreal 12-inch, including snippets of non-Beatles songs like Funky Town and Boogie Nights. But after the single made its first appearance in the Netherlands in mid-1980, Dutch DJs began to focus on the four-minute Beatles segment. In response, Egermont and Duzer came up with a tighter sub-five-minute mix that focused on the Beatles segment and fit on one side of a 45 RPM single. That version topped the Dutch charts in February 1981, before beginning its improbable world conquest. The single hit either number two or number one in England, Australia, Germany, Spain, and several other countries before finally seeing release in America. And in our country, it had a unique title. In most parts of the world, the song was released simply as Stars on 45 Medley, and the artist credit was sometimes also Stars on 45 or the generic Star Sound. But the company issuing the single in the U.S., a subsidiary of major label Atlantic Records called Radio Records, 
didn't want to take any chances with litigious music publishers in the States. So they issued the record with a 41-word title that listed every song covered by the Dutch team. The result, printed in a compressed font on the label of the 45, read as follows. <clears throat> Medley, intro Venus, sugar, sugar, no reply, I'll be back, drive my car, do you want to know a secret, we can work it out, I should have known better, nowhere man, you're going to lose that girl, stars on 45. This remains the longest title of a hit in Billboard Hot 100 history, in any position, let alone number one. Oh, yeah, and did I mention, it reached the top in America, too. 41-word title and all. This seemed utterly improbable, not least because when the song was climbing the Hot 100, the chart was being dominated by this blockbuster hit. Betty Davis' Eyes by Kim Carnes was shaping up as 1981's Song of the Summer and the top hit of the year. It spent nine weeks at number one. Well, to be exact, it spent five weeks on top and then another four. In between, it was interrupted by this crazy collection of Dutch Beatle imitators. Casey Kasem counted it down. And there it is, the new number one song in the USA by the group from Holland. They call themselves Stars on 45. And the new number one song is titled Medley. The full title was too much even for a radio pro like Kasem to read on the air. By reaching number one, Stars on 45's medley set a probably unbeatable record for song title length at the top of the chart. For those of you who enjoy Billboard trivia, the legal 41-word American name of the song was more than four times the length of 1975's 10-word chart topper by B.J. Thomas, Hey, Won't You Play Another Somebody Done Somebody Wrong Song. Another somebody done somebody wrong song. Finally, Stars on 45's hit also became the third and to date last single with John Lennon Paul McCartney songwriting credits to top the Hot 100. This is amazing, but it begs the question why? Why this bizarre, catchy, but disjointed record? Stars on 45 is pure, campy Eurodisco, and campy Eurodisco only occasionally caught on in America. Otherwise, Boney M would have had bigger hits here. Not to mention the fact that Stars on 45 reached number one in 1981, two years after disco's peak. The mirror ball exploding fever pitch of the disco backlash was in full force. How did Stars on 45's medley, a song that talks about disco in its opening line, overcome these hurdles? 
I would credit two cultural phenomena, one global and one specific to America. The first was the sadder of the two, the death of John Lennon. Lennon's assassination in December 1980 prompted a global outpouring of grief, which at first was, appropriately, very somber. By 1981, however, the memorials turned more toward wistful, whimsical Beatles nostalgia, even by former Beatles themselves. After Lennon's death, sales for his own music exploded. Double Fantasy, his just-issued album with Yoko Ono, shot to number one in America and generated three top ten singles, the most ever from a Lennon album, starting over, Woman, and Watching the Weeds. When I say that I'm okay, well, they look at me kind of strange. Surely you're not happy now, you no longer play the game. The third and last of these three hits, Watching the Wheels, reached its chart peak of number 10 in the spring of 1981, the very same week the Stars on 45's medley also broke into the top 10. In effect, the public was passing the baton from John Lennon himself to other acts that could help them grieve. Stars on 45's medley was, of course, recorded months before Lennon's death, but the fact that the song only took off globally in early 81, a year after its release, can clearly be attributed to the kitschy reinvigoration of Lennon's legacy. Just over a month later, George Harrison began climbing the Hot 100 with All Those Years Ago, his breezy, cheeky homage to his late bandmate. The week Harrison's song peaked at number two on the Hot 100, Stars on 45 was still in the top 10. Both singles were embraced in that summer as tributes to Lennon, but only Harrison's was an intentional tribute. Then the more US-centric reason, Another fluke of timing. Fueled by the release of Jane Fonda's 1981 book, Workout, by mid-81, the aerobics craze was on the cover of Time magazine and dominating American culture. Stars on 45, with its clap beat and novel repackaging of a familiar baby boomer hit parade, was the ultimate hit by which a 30-something record buyer could feel the burn. Or a 12-year-old record buyer. I myself have junior high school memories of our gym teacher soundtracking our 7th grade workouts to her vinyl copy of Stars on 45. Sugar. Basically, the song was ahead of the curve on a uniquely American phenomenon. Later in 1981, Olivia Newton-John would score her biggest ever hit with Physical, which spent 10 weeks at number one on the Hot 100 and was a bigger hit here than in any other country around the world.
this one two punch grief stricken Beatles nostalgia and resonance with the year's biggest U.S. fad proved potent. Indeed, Stars on 45 proved so popular, it even spawned a fad of its own, a medley craze. Proving that the music industry likes nothing better than an idea it can imitate, over the next 18 months, a flotilla of kitschy medleys hit the charts. Some even imitated Stars on 45's relentless clap beat. For example, Hooked on Classics, a medley of well-known classical pieces including Flight of the Bumblebee, Rhapsody in Blue, and The Marriage of Figaro, reached number 10 on the Hot 100, and it was issued by, no kidding, London's Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Indeed, some shockingly respectable artists and ensembles issued medleys in 1981 and 82, including the estate of the late Elvis Presley, the Beach Boys, who actually reached number 12 on the Hot 100 with their medley, And even the surviving Beatles themselves, Capitol Records issued an official medley of their songs taken from Beatles movies, and it too reached number 12. Hey, you've got to hide your The Beach Boys and Beatles medleys were thrown together fairly quickly to capitalize on a fad. Unlike the Stars on 45, they lacked any kind of unified beat, so their song-to-song juxtapositions were more awkward and jarring. They actually made Stars on 45's chintzy-sounding clap beat seem a bit more deft. And then there was Mecco the disco arranger and composer behind the chart-topping 1977 disco version of the Star Wars theme. Even Mecco made a comeback thanks to the medley craze with Pop Goes the Movies, a 1982 medley of other random film themes from The Magnificent Seven to Goldfinger. It cracked the top 40 at number 35. As for the stars on 45 themselves, they actually came back to the top 42. Stars on 45 3, a medley of Stevie Wonder covers, reached number 28 in the spring of 1982, almost a year after their world-beating Beatles medley. By the summer of 82, 
follow-up medleys by both Mecco and the Stars on 45 missed the Hot 100, and it was clear the medley craze was done. However, by scoring at least one follow-up hit, Stars on 45 had ensured they would not go down in history as a one-hit wonder. And they had the songwriting of John Lennon, Paul McCartney, and later Stevie Wonder to thank for it. All three of the Lennon-McCartney attributed number one hits I've discussed in this episode feel like fads or flukes. As recordings, they defy categorization, but they do offer a small window into the strange alchemy by which songs become hits. If the first three rules of real estate are location, 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 the first three rules of hit-making are timing, timing, timing. Peter and Gordon's pleasant Paul McCartney recording found a small window when the public was starved for a novel simulacrum of the Beatles' sound. Birds sing out of tune And rain clouds hide the moon Elton John's cover of a John Lennon song went all the way to the top, where other 70s Beatles covers fell short because it rode Elton's own cultural tsunami just as it crusted. And the Stars on 45 producers hit the ultimate timing jackpot in the saddest way possible. He's a As popular as the Beatles continue to be nearly 50 years after their breakup, there have been remarkably few Lennon-McCartney hits since 1981. The aforementioned Tiffany hit, I Saw Him Standing There, was the last top 10 cover of a Beatles song, all the way back in 1988. And no, the 2016 number one hit by Ray Shremard, Black Beatles, Fun As It Is, isn't a Lennon McCartney song. Actually, you could say there was one more Lennon McCartney cover after the Stars on 45 and Tiffany. It didn't get to number one, but it did reach number six in 1995. And the band that recorded it had the nerve to call themselves the Beatles. That would be the trio of Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr, who reunited for the 1995 ABC TV documentary series The Beatles Anthology. In honor of the occasion, the surviving trio took leftover solo recordings by the late John Lennon and recorded new vocals and instrumentation on top of them. While the anthology project generated a trio of chart-topping multi-platinum albums, the two new singles that were released from those LPs charted much more modestly. Free as a Bird was breathlessly awaited but after it peaked at number six, it fell out of the top 10 rather quickly. The follow-up, Real Love, just missed the top 10, peaking at number 11 in 1996. Radio airplay for both Beatles reunion singles was modest, 
and their Hot 100 appearances were fueled largely by sales to rabid Beatle fans. The public still loved the Beatles and their classic albums, but they were less interested in reanimated Beatle recordings. Perhaps this was as it should be. For a quarter century, the Beatles' inimitable recorded legacy had frustrated generations of ambitious song interpreters. In the end, even the Beatles themselves couldn't top it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Hit Parade. My producer this month is Benjamin Frisch, and we had help this episode from Danielle Hewitt. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is June Thomas, and Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcasts. Check out their roster of shows at slate.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to Hit Parade wherever you get your podcasts, in addition to finding it in the Slate Culture Gabfest feed. If you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us while you're there. It helps other listeners find the show. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to leading the Hit Parade back your way. Until then, keep on marching on the one. I'm Chris Melanthi. The love that we once knew